Grab an engagement sheet. That's why we have them. We believe that God speaks uh, through the opportunities we have here together. He speaks every day in our lives, but here's a chance for us to sit down and and talk about it. Well, those of you who don't know, um, I, I spent the week in Honduras, right? Praise God. Thanks for those of you who were praying for myself and Steve. We were down there, and that was awesome. And um, so I'm kind of coming off a little jet lag from flying in last night, I guess. Not really jet lag, but whatever it is, just being tired, I think. Um, but I, I wanted to um, continue this morning this series, and I'm excited about this topic because um, this uh, we've been doing this thing called What If the Church and asking, you know, what does Jesus think his church should be like? right? And we do a lot in this church trying to figure that out, you know. Is, is Jesus like ministering to small children? We think he is. Is Jesus like putting youth in positions of leadership? We think he is, right? Is, is, is Jesus' church like um, calling men to be leaders in their homes? We think that's what he wants. And so a lot of the question we've been asking is, uh, what does Jesus want for his church? What if the church did what Jesus said? And this week, we're talking about this idea of fearing God. What if the church feared God? Um, and um, it was interesting. I, I told you that I came, I was in Honduras. Um, apparently, and I haven't checked the statistics. I didn't check before I went. I don't do that kind of research. And, but we were told that um, the, the city where we didn't work, we stayed out of it, is the murder capital of Honduras, right? Um, San, San Paulo Sula, I think it's called, right? Um, or San Pedro. San Pedro Sula is the murder capital of Honduras. And you go, okay. And, and we think there's maybe some anomalies in the statistics there. But then apparently Honduras is the murder capital of the world, which is kind of crazy. So like they have more murders per capita than any other place. Um, and so some would say, well, you went, now I didn't feel like we were in danger. Did you feel like that? No, I didn't feel that way. I mean, Yeah, we want you all to sign up next June to go with us. <laughs> Woohoo! No, but that's what I wanted to say, Steve, because for some people, the idea of going to a place like Honduras is ter- it's a, it's terrifying. They have a fear of that. Christy led a team to Kenya, Africa last year, and there are people who are afraid of that. I, le- I went par- as part of a team to Costa Rica like seven years ago, and three of our, or two of our th- uh, four uh, teammates dropped out because they were afraid afraid. They didn't tell me that at the time. They said, oh, you know, I don't know. It's schedule. Later, years later, they said, I was afraid to leave the country. They still haven't left. Fear is driving their decisions. And so it, maybe it's not such a crazy thing to think about being afraid, but maybe you go, okay, you know, I'm not feeling called to leave the country. I'm not going to do that, Bill. But my question is this, is there, are there things in your life you're, you live in fear of? And I would wager that there are things like that in your life. Things that you make, your decisions are influenced by what you're afraid or what you're afraid of. It's the same word, but it sounds different, but what you fear. I'll give you an example. Um, Some of you concern yourselves with what you wear in certain settings, right? I mean, the retailers do a great job of saying, it's time to go back to school. You better have some nice clothes when you go back to school. Now, part of that could be that you go, I want to be the coolest dressed kid in school, right? Maybe. I mean, I always got dressed off the Sears, you know, clothes-out rack when I was a kid, you know. But some of those kids, but some of it is a fear that you'll be excluded, isn't it? It's not so much about being the best-dressed kid. You just want to be the worst-dressed kid in school, right? Or, Or maybe it's what you wear to work, you know. Do I look? Maybe you ladies ah, does this look okay? Because you're afraid of what other people think. 
right? Maybe it's what you choose to wear to church. Not here usually, but there are places where you don't know. We went down there and we worshiped with the Honduras. We said, is this okay, what we're wearing? Because we didn't want to, you know, we were afraid what they would think of us if we didn't dress appropriately. Maybe clothing isn't your thing. What if, what if you caught your boss uh, cheating at work? Maybe, maybe cheating on his wife. Maybe che- cheating on the numbers a little bit. Maybe taking something. Maybe a coworker. And you see it, and you go, that's not good. That's not right. But you're afraid to tell them the truth. Fear drives our decision-making. And what are we afraid of? Many times we're, well, I, that's why the whistleblower law came into effect, because if I tell my boss, I'll get fired, right? I recently had a conversation with somebody who was talking about the organization they work for, and they said, this isn't right, blah, blah, blah. And they said, but don't, please don't tell anybody I said that, because I'll get fired. Don't tell the truth. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of their boss. They're afraid of the organization they work for. Or maybe you have a great idea or you're really passionate or God's laid a burden on your heart and you're like, I would love to see that happen. But you don't want to tell anybody because you're afraid that someone will say, it's stupid. Or if you're like Bill in Honduras, you're afraid there's going to be a chorus of people singing, it can't be done. It can't be done. Tried that before. What drives your decision-making in your life? All of us, I'm going to say this, fear someone. All of us fear someone. Many of us fear many. But today, we're going to talk about whom Jesus said we should fear, right? I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. And we're going to work through some scripture here today. We're just going to see what the Lord does with our time together, okay? I'm going to read this to you, and then we'll pray. Starting in, I'm sorry, I should push that slide. Oh, that's not it. <laughs> that was it. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, but go ahead and turn to chapter 12. Let me go back and explain this. This is kind of funny. This was our youth. We did a uh, dodgeball event with the youth. One great thing about being a pastor or a youth leader or a youth volunteer is you get to go and be part of silly things like dodgeball. And we had this eye black stuff. You know, Tim Tebow was that the guy that put the verses under and some football players did that stuff. So we thought it'd be funny. So I put Luke, Luke 12.4 under my eye. And I put First John something on the other side. Um, just, we'll, you'll see why in a moment. But that was me playing dodgeball. All right, here we go. Well, let's read Luke 4 real quick and then we'll jump back around to 1. This is what Luke 12.4 says. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and do no more. And that was my dodgeball threat to the youth. <laughs> What's that mean? It means don't be afraid of the person that's going to kill you with a dodgeball. Right? That's scriptural. Let's read it in context. Meanwhile, while a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on each other, Jesus began to speak, listen to it, first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from rooftops. 
I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but after that can do no more. But I will tell you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before the synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Please join me in prayer. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and to worship you, to sing praises of your magnitude, the glory of your creation, which is so much beyond our small earthly existence. The universe and stars that proclaim your glory, the trees that grow up from the earth and shout out about a God who is still making things new. We give you praise and glory for that work you're doing. We pray, Father God, as we come into your word today, you would give us what your text just promised, the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we could know more fully who you are first and who we are in you. May we be taught the important lessons of life today, Father, and I pray that if there's fleshly stuff here, if there's stuff of ourselves that we want to manifest, including myself, Father, I pray it would be put out so that your Holy Spirit could teach clearly today the things you would have us to know. May you be glorified as we seek to honor you and know you and maybe indeed fear you more today. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so this is the question, then, and, and Jesus says this, and I think you, I know you already heard it in there. He says, don't fear men, fear God. That's what Jesus teaches his disciples. It said, first, right, meanwhile, the crowd of many thousands were gathering, so Jesus had this crowd that were trampling each other like a rock star to get to him, and he started teaching the disciples of his, he was the learners who were listening, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy here is acting or pretending, right? They acted like they were better than everyone else. Skip down with me to verse 4. I tell you then, my friends, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and do no more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, fear him. This comes at the heels of Jesus' ministry being challenged by the Pharisees, right? I mean, if you look at the end of chapter 11, it says, when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something that he might say. I mean, they set themselves against Jesus and his ministry. And in this context, he says, don't fear men. The truth is the religious leaders in Jesus' day had it out for him. And, and I would think that if Jesus is telling his disciples, don't fear men, right? He actually says the, the, um, uh, it's, the yeast of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. It's pretending to be holy when you're not holy. He's like, don't be afraid of them. I think he's speaking because they were afraid of the religious leaders of the day. They were intimidated by these guys. They're following Jesus Jesus is healing people. He's talking about a kingdom that is here right now. He's talking about him being the fulfillment of Scripture. He's the promise that God made to us. 
And yet they are finding themselves afraid of the religious people who don't agree. And he says to his disciples, don't fear them, but fear God. Has anyone ever tried to intimidate you before or to make you afraid, to impose themselves on you? You know, I mean, I don't know if you've had experience before where you, you walk into a new environment and someone tries to make you feel uncomfortable. And if you have no context, I would wager if you have no context for your status in that situation, you will, sure, you will shrink back in fear. It will do that. It will modify your behavior. When you fear people, you'll behave differently. And Jesus says, you should not fear men. But right on the heels of it, he said, but you shouldn't be without fear. You ought to fear God. Everyone ought to fear God. Like, I'm talking the whole planet ought to fear God, right? You think you're worried about what your friends think of what you wear? What does God think about what you wear? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a bigger thing happening here in your life. You think you're afraid of what your boss will think if you tell the truth, what's going on? What will God think if you don't? You think someone's going to not love you anymore if you tell them the truth? But what, God, what does God think of his people if they don't tell each other the truth? In love, like, you, this isn't good for you. You see, a right-set fear shapes our behavior and if we walk into a situation where we are, we, we are rightly fearing God and not fearing men, you can walk into any situation and do God's work there. Have confidence in what God has called you to do. Some of us say, well, you know, why should we fear God? I want you to see what the text says. This is why you should fear God, because people can kill you. Honduras, you can die in Honduras, but that's it. That's all they can do. But what Jesus says is, God can kill you and then throw you into hell. Now, we don't talk a lot about hell anymore. I talked, you know what, I, I spoke last Sunday night at the Highland Home, and it's about, I don't know what, who was there with me? It was Chris, and who else was there? Ruby Burns was there. Oh, and Denise Schwartz. Denise here today? Okay, well, there you are, right? And what was there, like maybe 10 or 12 like one guy and like 11 ladies, you know, like whatever the ratios are there. It's, you know, it's a bachelor place to be, right, Chris? Uh, and actually he was married, so praise God for that. But I, I talked about this idea of Lazarus in hell, and I said, you know, here's this guy who was rich. Not Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead, by the way. It's Lazarus who was in the, in the rich man's, you know, castle and looking down on, on the, uh, I mean, Lazarus wasn't in the castle. Lazarus was at the gate. The rich guy was in the castle. I got it all wrong. Okay, but there's a story in the Bible about it. Trust me, it's true. This guy came under conviction about, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? That... We've lived our whole lives, and, and because we're well off, I don't know where I was going with that. I apologize for taking that rabbit trail. It was going somewhere. Here's, here's what, the reason I, I think that struck a chord is, we, okay, let me tell the story now. I've kind of totally messed this up. Lazarus is this guy laying at the gate. I wouldn't tell you that I'm preaching this. And there's this rich dude in the house. And this dude doesn't want for anything his whole life. And then Lazarus is begging for food, and, and he's a leper, right? And dogs are licking his sores. 
Like he, he can't even get crumbs from the table. And when they die, it says that he is carried off by angels into the bosom of Abraham where he is loved and cared for and healed and whole and beautiful. And this dude who spent his whole life having everything finds himself condemned eternally, separated from God in agony all the time. And it's so miserable, he cries out, would you let the old leper who laid at my gate dip his finger in the water and put it on my tongue so I might find relief? But what does that have to do with fear? Jesus says you ought to fear someone who can condemn you like that. There's a bigger issue at play in this life than what your friends think or what your boss thinks or what people at church think. Do you fear God for the true power that he has? If you read that story, you know there's nothing that they could be done. And there's this whole backstory about he never, that guy never even repents. He just wants the water for himself. Just relieve me of my suffering. We ought to have a right fear of God. Hebrews 9, 27 says this. It is appointed for each person to die. We know that, right? Who knows you're going to die? Does everyone here know you're going to die? Raise your hand if you know you're going to die. Please help me out. Little kids, isn't she adorable? She's going to die. And you're gonna, everybody, you're going to die. Do you all know it? That's uncomfortable, ain't it? Gosh, you guys just admitted it. You're Americans and everything. You admitted you're going to die. <laughs> Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for a man first to die and then face judgment. The, the whole point of the Hebrews isn't the dying. Everybody's going to die, but everyone's going to face judgment. And it goes on in Hebrews to talk about our Savior in Christ. He will redeem us, save us in the moment of judgment. Well, I want to share. So here's the thing. So Jesus says, don't fear men, but fear God. And then I believe that he implies that fearing God should modify our behavior. And I'll tell you where I see this from. Verse 2 and 3, listen to what he says about the Pharisees who were whispering. You see, they, in the previous, they were whispering about Jesus. Hey, let's find a way to trap him. Hey, think of a good question. We're going to stump this guy. We're going to figure him out. We're going to get the combination. We're going to break him down. He's not real. He's not the authentic person he claims to be. And Jesus says this in verse 2, There is nothing concealed that won't be disclosed or hidden that won't be made known. Right? What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from rooftops. He's saying that all things will be revealed when? At judgment. You know what that means? That means you don't have to be afraid of someone conspiring against you because God's going to bring justice. But that also means that the things that you and I whisper in chambers secretly will be revealed in the daylight before God. Right? He's talking to his disciples, and he says, don't worry, because everything that's been said quietly, we proclaimed, rightly judged before the King Almighty and his throne. It's an amazing text. Look at where else it happens. It's in verses 8 and 9. Jesus says this, I tell you that whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned by the angels of God. He says, your fear of God will be made manifest. It's going to matter. Were you afraid to talk about what you believe about God? You know, I mean, and I'm telling you, as someone who is repeatedly disobedient to this, God says, hey, he whispers, hey, go and talk to that person. You go, I don't know, it's going to be weird. And, he's, and then you're disobedient, you don't do it. That's how much my life is. 
And, and I, later I think about it in this context, and it's like, I'm not afraid of God. I'm afraid of that person. What are they going to think of me? They're, it's going to be weird. God's saying, who do you fear, Bill? Who are you afraid of? Maybe that's not like that for you, but that's how that, that works for me. Proverbs writes twice, but I love the way it says it in 9.10, the fear of Yahweh, the Lord, the creator God, is the beginning of wisdom. In the first chapter, it says it's the beginning of knowledge. So the beginning of knowledge and wisdom is fearing God. It's like the, 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 the root that we built everything on is the fear of God. We ought to fear God. Now, I'm going to bust you some stuff quickly here. I, I want you to see this because, so you go, okay, if you've been in church world a while, you go, but we're saved. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, we're redeemed in Jesus' name, and we are. We're reborn. We're regenerated. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, and you do. But I want you to notice something, that everything leading up to this conversation about whom you should fear comes on the heels of him rebuking religious people and Bible experts. Do you believe that's true? He came into the world to save sinners and rebuke religious people and Bible scholars and demons. That's who I see Jesus rebuke. He rebukes his disciples a time or two also when they're off the path, right? Look back with me. Stay where you're at, but look back with me. Chapter 11, verse 37. I want you to see what Jesus says. It says this. When, they had finished, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went and reclined at the table. I love this. This guy, a religious leader, says, hey, Jesus, you got some good stuff going. Come to my house and eat. This is an honor for Jesus to be invited into the Pharisee's house, the religious leader's house. But the Pharisee, noting that he didn't uh, wash his hands first, was surprised. This is what Jesus said. Now, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, right? You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? Look at what it says in verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all kinds of herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You know what he's saying there? Woe to you, religious people, because you're generous, but you don't really care about justice or the love of God in the world. It's like this legalistic thing. I'm giving more than everyone else. I'm not just giving 10% of one thing. I'm giving 10% of everything. That's what a tithe is. But you ultimately don't care in your heart what's going on. You should have practiced the latter without the former, undone. 43, woe to you, Pharisees. I mean, if Jesus is saying woe to you, you got to pay attention. He's like, it's sad for you. It's sad for you, religious people, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and the marketplaces. They're full of pride. In the house of God. Like, they love, and I mean, we feel that, right? You want to be honored. Verse 44, so you were prideful, religious people. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over and don't even know it. That sounds a lot like verses 8 and 9. If you, did, if you don't mention me in front of others, I'm going to not mention you in front of the angels of God. He says, woe to you, religious people, because people walk by you every day. And it's, you know what an unmarked grave is, right? It's just like a hole in the ground, <laughs> you know? There's nothing there. And he says, people pass by you, and it makes no difference in the world. No difference. 
You're like an unmarked grave. People pass right by. Woe to you, religious people, when you do that in your lives. I love this, what happens in verse 45. So one of the experts in the law, those are the Bible scholars, answered, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. I want you to see what happens here. So they're at the table. They're hanging out. Jesus is there. Some Pharisees and some religious people and probably his disciples are hanging out also. And this half of the table sees him rebuking that half of the table. And they go, hey, hey, Jesus, take it easy because you're talking bad about them. And it kind of insults us too because we're buddies. You know what Jesus does? He takes his truth can and he just goes. Let me tell you about that. You talk to Jesus about how he talks about other people. He'll start talking to you about how you are. You know? You say, oh, oh, Lord, go easy on these people. And he turns your, his, his Holy Spirit towards your heart. Listen to me, you Bible experts. And you experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with the burden they can't carry. But you won't lift a finger to help them out. You know what I tell you you ought to do? You know what the Bible says you should do? And they just walk away. I ain't going to help you do it. I ain't going to show you how I failed to do it. But you better do it. And then you just go and you have all your darkness inside, your sin, hiding out. And people go, man, that guy's holy. And, and they're broken under the weight of the expectations. Look at what he says in 47. Woe to you, Bible experts, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. Now, this one's a little more complicated to get underneath of, but I think it's you deny your sinfulness. You know? It's people who look at the cross of Christ and go, oh, those Jews killed Jesus. Oh, those Romans killed Jesus. Oh, the kings killed Jesus. But they never say, oh, I killed Jesus. They don't acknowledge it. And we make big cathedrals for the saints. And we think that makes us holy. But we have a hand in his crucifixion, our brokenness and our sin. We are guilty. But the experts, they don't acknowledge that guilt. No, no. That was my former life. Not now. Now I'm holy. Look what he says in 50. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets. Whew. I bet these guys wish they wouldn't ask him nothing. <laughs> you know, keep your mouth shut when Jesus is handing out rebukes. That's what I'm talking about. Last one, 52. Woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You have not come in yourself and you have hindered others from entering in. Not only are you not inviting people into the kingdom of God, you're standing in the doorway and you're blocking the entrance. You're keeping it shut up and you're making people think that you have to be good enough to come into the kingdom of God. You have to earn a way in. Woe to you, experts in the law. Jesus comes to rebuke religious people. He comes to rebuke Bible scholars, and he comes to rebuke demons, all, all, listen to me, church, who are working against his intent in this world. Woe to us if we become those people. How did this all start? He said, you don't be like them. You don't be like them. We have this trap in the church where in the grace of Christ, we have presumed upon him for eternity. You know what I mean? 
I mean, we have this trap where we say, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I mean, we are the experts in the law at the table with other people that Jesus is talking about their sin in their life. And we say, yeah, yeah, he's talking to them, but not to me. And, and I want to um, jump here to the book of Revelations with me, if you would. It's going to be Revelations chapter 1. I just want you to hear something about Because the gospel says that Jesus came once to redeem sinners, right? He comes a second time to bring salvation. But I want you to see how he comes when he brings his salvation to the world. Starting in verse 10. John is isolated on this island of Patmos. He's, he's, he's under man's persecution for his beliefs and proclamation. And this is what God does with a man who's under the persecution of the world. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. That's the spirit of God. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. You ever had a blast of trumpet in your ear? Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone, quote, like a son of man. It means he was undescribable. He was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and he had a golden sash across his chest. Listen to the word. His head and hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes burned like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like a sun shining in its full brilliance. And lest we be confused about him just saying he was beautiful, he was beautiful when I saw him, he says this, when I took hold of him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. This is the God that we love and serve. He is holy. He is beyond us. And here he, he says, I fell at his feet as though he is dead when Jesus comes back. You see, we, we go, well, you know, Jesus, we're going to, the whole world, yeah, you know, there are people saying, Jesus, come, Jesus, come, and we want Jesus to come. But I want you to see that when Jesus comes, he comes in this way that we're like, whoa, it's so much bigger than we had imagined. And I want you to see with me that starting in chapter 2, who does Jesus speak to? The churches. When he comes back, he speaks to the churches. And we don't have time to go through all these, but if you look, every one of these, he says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars. I'm in chapter 2, verse 1. In his right hand, and walks among the seven lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. These are all good things. But then look at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You've forgotten your first love. And he goes through, and every church has got the second one who is just in suffering, suffering for his name. He rebukes. Every other church, he says, you've been praiseworthy in this, but you've forgotten this. Why did they forget that? Because they've forgotten the fear of God. Right? When Jesus comes back, and I go, so what's that mean for Family Bible Church? I know, I hear this all the time. Well, it's just this little church. I get it, but it's God. I don't want a big church for a big church. I want to know what God wants to do with us. You go, well, I'm just one little believer. What can I do? You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. What can't you do? We, we make so little of God and so much of the world. I can't go there or do that. 
Turn with me, one more. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Because this gets down to the individual responsibility. And, and you know, we don't think much about group stuff. But I'm telling you, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be hard. And we want to be found faithful. We want to be found as a church that is suffering. I don't mean the family Bible, but the church, part of the big C church that's been suffering for his glory. This comes in the middle of three teachings, and Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. You can look it up. It's back in 23 and 24 where the questions come from, the beginning of 24. But they're asking, what, what's the kingdom of God going to be like, and when's it going to come? And he says three parables he teaches. The parable of ten virgins is in the verse part of 25, and that's where he basically says, you've got to be ready all the time, keeping your, oil filled with, your lamp filled with oil. And then he says, I've given all of you something. You should be using it. And then the third is a separation of sheep and goats. That means that there are going to be people who God's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, come into my kingdom. And there are going to be people who's going to say, I never knew you. Go to hell. Oh, did you just say that again? Yeah, because that's what Jesus said. He's going to cast people into a place where the eternal punishment. That don't seem fair, but it's the gospel. But look in the middle, because the middle is where we're at right now. I mean, because you go, oh, it's not fair to who you're getting a chance. Listen to what the word says. Again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and trusting his property to them, entrusting his property to them. And to one he gave five, another he gave two, and another he gave one, each according to what he could do. You see, he didn't give them stuff they couldn't use. He gave them all they could use, everything they needed to do what they needed to do, according to their ability. That's what the word says there. Then he went away on his journey. Praise God that Jesus is on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put the money to work, and he gained five more. And the one who had two went and put it to work, and he gained two more. But the one who received one went off, dug a hole in the ground, there it is again, and hid it, hid his talent, hid his gift from God. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. And the one who received five said, here's five more. And the master said in verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, only five. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share my happiness. The man with two talents came and said, well, I have two. And his father said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, only two. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share my happiness. And the last dude, and you probably know this story, who had one, he said, master, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid. I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. And now look, I still have it. I saved it for you. There's a lot wrong with this third guy. There's a lot wrong. He says, you, you harvest where you did not sow? Did, you, did, did the master in this parable not sow the seed? Didn't he? He said, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, one, seeds sown. This guy says, I know you're asking for things that you can't possibly want because you didn't invest anything here. Oh, yes, I did. I invested in you. I, I trusted you with my stuff. The question is, what are you going to do with it? I got this. 
If your first plan for a conversation with the creator of the universe on Judgment Day is a ex- list of excuses about why you couldn't do what you were supposed to do, what you were able to do, you are in a bad spot. I want you to hear me. If that's your game plan for eternal life, well, it was tougher than you know. <laughs> no. Well, you didn't give me enough. That guy got five. Nope. No. You had everything you need. You have everything you need to do what God is calling you to do. If your plan is to make excuses before the high and holy God of the universe, before the one whose eyes burn like fire and hair is like wool and his tongue is like a two-edged sword cutting the truth from the lies, you're in trouble. We're all in trouble if that's our plan. Look at what he says. The master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. And I don't say that to you because that cuts me. You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew I harvested where I do not sow and and where I don't scatter seed. Then you should have put my money on deposit and returned something to me with interest. If you know I'm so terrifying, why didn't you do something before I came back? Listen to me, church. This story ends like this. Take the talent from him and give it to one who has 10. That's the guy who invested the five and got five more. Because everyone who has will be given more, and the ones who don't use what they have will be taken away. Throw that worthless servant outside in darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then on the heels of that, Jesus says, by the way, the day of judgment is going to be goats and our sheep and goats. Sheep and goats. It matters what we do. Who do you fear in this life? Who do I fear? Now, you say, man, that's right, heavy. How do you take an inventory? One of the things I was so amazed by in Honduras when we were there is that the people have what they need around them. They just aren't using it. The guy who runs it so frustrated, he said they, they have what they need to give food to their families, but they let the ground lay on worked, and they lay in a hammock and starved to death. We all have been given a piece of land, a talent, a gift, a responsibility, an opportunity, a birthright. What are you going to do with it? Because there's coming a day of judgment where the master will say, what did you do with what I gave to you? And that's a bigger problem than how wise you were with your money or your time or your life in this, in this experience. It's a bigger, bigger deal. Well, I want to close with a story. We had the opportunity to sit down with some pastors, and this guy, do you remember his name, Steve? I want to say Miguel. It's something. We'll just say Miguel. I apologize. I didn't, I didn't have the heart to ask him. I was like, you know, no habla de español. I mean, hablo punquito, but whatever. So it's really bad in my Spanglish. And we sat together with these pastors, but this guy was about that tall. Yeah. And not all Hondurans were. The, the other pastor we met was, one was my size, one was intimidating. <laughs> and, and I kind of was weak. And uh, he, would, he would look down, but he began to talk about the power of God and the way God works and the spiritual battle of following Jesus Christ. And I was like, wow, 
I mean, he was a, mi hermano de Jesús, my brother of Jesus. You know, I mean, he, we were, I'm like, yeah, I wanted to, like, that, I want to be on mission with that guy. And he told us a story. He had come back to fight the satanic powers in Honduras. And he believes it's a straight up, I mean, Satanism, a straight up real battle for heaven and hell, eternal matters. But he was going to a, a village. He had gone around spreading the, spreading the gospel everywhere. And he was in some place, and a guy came alone to him in a room with a knife. He wasn't in the villages. He was just hanging out somewhere. And this guy came with a knife, and he said, I've come to kill you today. The, this little dude had, and he, how old was this guy when we, he was 50 at, at this point? So he's, now right away, what am I thinking? I'm thinking like the, uh, I'm thinking uh, born identity. You know, or the, the driver guy, you know, the, <laughs> I'm a missionary, baby. <laughs> right? No, not this guy. He's meek and humble. Doesn't even acknowledge, he acknowledges his risk. And you know what he says? In a moment of inspired holiness, he says, no one can kill me but God. Not the guy with the knife. God. And he says, I looked on my hands. I have, I have a piece of bread. And I held the bread out to the guy. And I said, please, take this. And he said, this guy took the bread. And he said, instantly, it was like a spell was broken. And the guy with the knife began to weep. What is that? It's God. Who are you afraid of? Who do you fear? It should be God. And that affects all of us. Whether we're missionaries in Honduras or we're not even yet convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, you should be asking the question, whom do I have to fear. Pray with me, if you would. Father, uh, because we are your people, by the grace of your Son, we give you thanks and praise. And Lord, we acknowledge openly our sinfulness, that we are not worthy of your glory, and yet you have shown us grace, unmerited favor, that you've preserved our life to this day, and we pray that today we would trust you more. I pray that if there are those here who are, have lived their whole lives afraid of the world and thought there was nothing beyond it, that you would convince them through your Holy Spirit that you are there, that there's a bigger thing going on in this existence. I pray that they would know the grace of Jesus on the cross who died while we were yet sinners to save us. And then I pray, no matter if that person today says, Lord, yes, come into my heart. I want to know you more. Or if we prayed that prayer 40, 50, 60 years ago, I pray that you would renew in us an awe and understanding of the magnitude of who you are and what you've invested in us. We want, Father, to be the faithful servant. We want to not fear the world, but fear your holy name. May you do that work through your church, and may each of us hold ourselves accountable before you 
give you praise and glory for the chance to do this, to worship, to learn, to hear your word taught, proclaimed. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.